0: Hey everyone, Patrick here, and it's that time of the week again, it's time to get dark and devious. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, it's great to see you here again on our podcast, Dark and Devious. I'm I'm looking at Chris right now. Uh, he looks very, very dapper as <laughs> as usual. Uh-huh.
1: Very happy to be recording on a day off.
0: <laughs> and a beautiful day. It's yes. it is gorgeous. Spring has arrived, and I'm so happy
1: right I can't wait for like green things to start popping up again
0: my flowers um so my perennials which um are the ones that grow back year after year um they're all starting to come up and our strawberry bush is starting to come up which I'm super strawberry
1: bush that's so cute I love it
0: yeah we planted it last summer um and I remembered that uh, we had like some, some berry bushes on the farm growing up and I knew they grew really well in Illinois, but I wasn't sure about Minnesota because the soil very, very different between Illinois and Minnesota. I discovered that after moving here, um, cause like my first year living here, like our garden did not grow a thing and it's because <laughs> the soil is garbage. Um, <laughs>
1: I mean, it also might be your urban urban dirt, maybe that's, I don't know. Maybe you can do something true. special to it.
0: Yeah. And so now we have like raised beds that grow fine because we just buy you know potting soil. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm so excited to see greenery. And I had no and,
1: idea you had such a green thumb.
0: Um, it's more like uh opaque. Yellow thumb. <laughs> <laughs> Not every plant uh, I touch survives, but I try.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough.
0: Um. Well, some exciting, exciting news. Um, for you and I, anyways, is it's that like,
1: it's so funny how like how exciting this is to us.
0: It is. So we we've known we've had some listeners in Canada, but I do know people in Canada. So it could be them. And they still haven't told me if it's them or not. I don't know. <laughs> um, but we have a listener in Australia. So hello. hey,
1: mate. <laughs> hello
0: down there. Um, please don't hate us because I just said that.
1: <laughs> They're like, and we will stop listening now. <laughs> they make one Australia joke.
0: Right. Um, so hey, Australia, we see you. Thanks for checking us out.
1: Right, thank you so much. Like, uh, mm-hmm. hope to tell all your friends. I would love it if we got made, I uh, like. Have you ever seen that documentary, Waiting for Sugar Man? No. It's about this this guy who, uh, you know, he was a a singer and he recorded some music back in like the like the early '70s or something like that, and he didn't really make a big splash on the music scene in america but he was like he was like legendary in south africa and so like all these like all these years go by and he just kind of goes about his normal life and then he finds out that he's like this legend in south africa and then his music kind of gets rediscovered like someone tracks him down and then he becomes this huge celebrity um it would be so cool if it was like that like we have we find a, that we have a cult following in australia then we could do australian tours i would be down for that
0: i would too i mean i sometimes i'll be at like the gym and i'll be thinking about our podcast and i'll like i'll daydream i'll be like oh we'll fi- we'll probably start with like a midwest tour because we're small <laughs> and then we'll do like a west coast tour And then maybe our first international can be like Toronto or Vancouver. (laughs) Um,
1: It's kind of like being in a band where like, you know, you start with your region, like you like start small in your own state, then like maybe go to a couple different states. And then, you know, before you know it, you're playing in New York City or something.
0: Yeah. I mean, will that happen? Who knows? Who knows? do we enjoy doing this regardless? Yes.
1: Absolutely. 100%. Yes.
0: Yeah, so, um, and also speaking of listeners, um, I was asked the question uh, just this morning as what are our listeners called? So a lot of podcasts, they have like their, their like little nickname for their listeners and their subscribers. I know. Like My Favorite Murder, there's the Murderinos uh, with Morbid, which check out Morbid, it's one of my favorites. Uh, they have their Weirdos, um, and then they also have the Coven. Um, <laughs> so Chris, what do you think? Um, should maybe our listeners be Deviants?
1: That's That was the first thing that popped in my mind. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's that's cute. I like that.
0: Or what about the the DDs? Dee
1: I was thinking of something playing on that too, like a, like a double D's or so, no, no, that's not gonna work. but no. uh, something with a play off of that the the two D's that are in our podcast name. Um, I
0: mean'm I'm, I'm sure there's some people out there that would love to be called double d's
1: you're right Uh, there are some people who strive for that in fact (laughs) yeah but
0: but that also might offend some people too so maybe not
1: or yeah i don't Hmm. know some people might not be into it you know we'll have to get some feedback maybe but i i do like deviance right away that kind of that kind of like jumps to the top of my list but i'm open to other ideas
0: i am too so listeners um, we may decide this with or without your help, but <laughs> <laughs> if you have any ideas or if you just like, if you were like, yo, deviants, I'm on it. That's gold. Um, just let us know. You can pop us an email, uh, dark and devious podcast at gmail.com or dark and devious podcast on Facebook or Instagram. And then if you know us personally, you can, you know, shoot us a text let us know
1: it's like you could reach us at 555
0: five, five. <laughs> mhm 8675309 oh,
1: <laughs>
0: and if you don't get that joke you're too young right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. nice nice okay yeah um uh, i'm trying to think of anything else that um any fun in- oh i I was really hoping in my mailbox at work that someone would have have uh, left a note about that, that guy whose last name is Collazo who got the Puerto Rico book. And there was nothing waiting for me. I don't know who rang this customer up, uh, but he did come pick up the book. So he obviously got my message.
0: He's probably Maybe- creeped out by you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm not telling this this weirdo bookseller my personal information.
1: <laughs> so, I guess or maybe I'll fa- maybe I'll um just throw the the um maybe I'll just throw that out to my coworkers and be like, "Did you by chance ring this person up?" Cuz sometimes someone who like sometimes it's not always the same people who work every week. So maybe True. I'll cross paths with the person who rang them up. Yeah. Hmm. I hope so. I really I'm really, really curious. I don't know if I find out that they actually are related. I, I don't know what I'm gonna say about it. I I'm like, that's so cool. <laughs> or I research that and I think it's really interesting. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe yeah. I could just go to ancestry.com and then figure out who's descended from him and see if there's a guy that matches his name.
0: And become a borderline stalker.
1: Yeah, maybe I might be taking this too far.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Uh, and what better way to go about stalking someone than um, documenting it on recorded audio.
1: Yeah, and distributing it to an audience of people.
0: Yes, yes. Very wise, very wise of you.
1: Well, Mr. Koyazo, wherever you are, I'm, I'm sorry if I made you uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're fine.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. It's probably the most interesting voicemail they've gotten recently.
0: <laughs> the only so. voicemails I get are these stupid recordings where it's like, act now or you will lose the title of your vehicle. I'm like, girl, like... I get at least like three a week.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, my partner and I were just looking through all of the spam calls that I've gotten because I usually never pick those up because it'll be like some random location in another state. Like, no, I don't know anybody personally in Vermont. Why is that? Why am I getting a phone call from Vermont or whatever? And uh, there was one that actually came from Bird Island, Minnesota. I'm like, Bird Island, where is that? And we actually spent a good 20 minutes looking at like on the, the Apple maps, like on the phone of a map of Bird Island, Minnesota. And we're like, oh, this looks like a really cute little town. Like, we should just go there. It's like an hour and a half away, but let's just drive there someday. So all because we got a, I got a random spam call. And and it's like a town of like maybe a thousand people. It's like a, it's a small community. And it's like, yeah, it was probably not actually anybody who lives there calling me.
0: No, like you can get, you can get a phone number in an area code from anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, I almost got caught like two or three years ago in a scam that they call, it was a Minnesota number and, um, you know, I'm a teacher. I have, you know, parents have my, my number, So like, I usually answer the Minnesota calls, but nothing out of state. Mm-hmm. So I felt fine answering this call. So like, oh, maybe it's you know work related or doctor related, something along those lines. And they told me that like my social security number had been used to purchase a car in Texas, and it was found at the Mexico border um, with blood stains inside and like um, cocaine and stolen weapons. Which so like they use like the the scare factor. Right. And they're like, they're like, you need to verify your social security number with us now. Oh my Um, gosh.
1: That's so scary. Cause you're, I think that's uh, a fear that we all have that your social security number is going to be compromised. And then it's like your whole credit score and everything is like ruined.
0: Yeah. So I got my, my husband's like opinion. on it. I was like, yo, this person's on the phone telling me I need to verify my social Here's the situation. Yeah. And then he was like, no. <laughs> but, but because they used that scare tactic, I was like, I was like, they told me there was a warrant out for my arrest. So then after that, they I never
1: called- call you. They never call you to tell you you have right. Yeah.
0: After that, I called the non emergency police to report the incident. And that's what she told me as well. She was she like, she's like, if we want to arrest you, we're just going to show up. Yeah. Like, we're not going to give you a warning. I was like, oh, <laughs> that's how that works. Okay.
1: So to all of our listeners, if someone calls you and tells you that you have a warrant out for your arrest, it's bogus. They will they will never tell you ahead of time. Why would you? It's one of those things where you have to be like, okay, logic brain. Why would they ever tell you that they're coming to and give you a chance to run away or, you know, or. I don't know, barricade yourself in your house or something. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, if they want you, they will show up and get you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you didn't give your social security number out.
0: Thanks. (laughs) I'm glad my husband was here because (laughs) who knows what I would have done. Well, any other housekeeping?
1: Nothing I can think of. Although now I just can't, help but imagine this scenario of of this blood-stained stolen car situation and 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 you just being like you know what come and get me <laughs> <laughs> be like oh yeah it actually was me that bought the car and had the stolen weapons and the drugs in it
0: what yes. of it yeah
1: call them on their bluff
0: I'm all about those hard drugs and <laughs> and stolen weapons.
1: Oh yeah. Totally. That totally matches you to a T. Well, are we ready for let's we're going to dial things back a century today.
0: Ooh. Going uh, back in the time machine. We're
1: going to get in our little time machine and we're going to we're gonna go back, actually, almost exactly a hundred years.
0: I'm, I'm very intrigued, and I already have my case done, uh, for next week, which is also ninety nine years ago. So, Christopher, <laughs> if you do my case right now, <laughs> I'll be blown I, away.
1: I'm, I'm, like ninety nine point nine percent sure that this is not gonna be the same one that you did.
0: Okay. Well, we will find out right after this.
1: All right, we are back and we're hopping in that time machine, going back about a hundred years. Today's I'm going to tell you about the reign of terror in Osage County in Oklahoma.
0: Okay, we are safe.
1: Okay, good, I, I had a feeling. Uh, was also I feel like this really goes along with because you had said uh, when we were just talking off the air how a lot of our there's a number of our cases that we've talked about that deal with um, hate crimes and or that there's like a an element of that Um, and so this one kind of stays on brand with that Uh, although this is uh, it's a really fascinating broad case and we're gonna try and Narrow it down a little bit just because um, this is a really big, complicated case. Uh, and I try to make it more consumable for to fit our format today. But it's really, really fascinating. So I'm excited to share it for you.
0: Okay. I'm excited to hear it.
1: All right. When you think of the richest people in the world today, who comes to mind? Maybe, (laughs) hopefully, hopefully one of these days. So uh, maybe royalty, um, Silicon Valley tech billionaires, celebrities, but in the 1920s, the answer to that question was actually quite surprising. The Osage Indians of Oklahoma were known as the wealthiest group of people per capita due to a very fortunate twist of fate. When the tribe had been corralled there by the US government in 1866, they were given a rocky and desolate chunk of land in the northeastern part of what is now Oklahoma. But what they didn't know was that this mostly undesirable bit of land sat on top of one of North America's most prosperous oil reserves. And as part of the terms of the treaty with the Native American nation, they retained the mineral rights to the area. As oil soon became the lifeblood of the rapidly industrializing Western world, the Osage people suddenly found themselves sitting on a gold mine. But with newfound wealth came a strange problem. Despite their wealth, the members of the tribe were dying at a rate much higher than the general population. Something was happening to these people, and it was driven by hatred and greed. Today's story will focus on the family of Molly Burkhart, an Osage woman whose family was greatly affected in the time period that became known as the Reign of Terror.
0: I actually um, recently learned about this. I didn't know it was called the Reign of Terror, but I... I have a brief general knowledge about this, um, so I'm really, really interested to hear the deep dive that you've done.
1: Right, uh, and and this, this um, the research from today's episode comes from a fantastically researched book by David Gran called "Killers of the Flower Moon," and it it was an absolute pleasure to read. Uh, It's really, really fascinating. And it also does a good job of kind of weaving together multiple storylines. And he's got it kind of broken up into three chunks that, uh, that go together really, really cool, really, really well. So in 1921, Molly Burkhart was 35 years old. She was married to a white man named Ernest Burkhart and had two children, Elizabeth and James. Molly had been mostly integrated into white society, but still maintained a deep connection to her cultural heritage through the close ties with her family. She was reserved and was not lavish with her spending like some of her neighbors. In fact, in that book, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, he noted that sometimes her neighbors would uh, would occasionally throw away grand pianos and buy new ones rather than have them serviced. Like, I love me a good curbside find. I don't know what I would do if I, if I saw a grand piano that was like, that just needed to be tuned or something on the side of the road.
0: And imagine having the amount of money where you could be like, oh, my piano is off key. I'm just gonna get a new one.
1: Yes, throw it away. <laughs> I <laughs> don't know unabused. why I was,
0: yeah, I don't know why I was a uh, fake British for that, but. <laughs> <laughs> because
1: it automatically makes you fancy.
0: <laughs> yes, it does.
1: <laughs> so we're talking about like extreme lavish wealth here. So Molly's sister, Anna Brown, was quite different from her in almost every way. Anna was known as kind of a wild party girl for the time. A reminder, in 1919, the 18th Amendment, also known as the Volstead Act, which by the way, there is a fantastic speakeasy here in Minnesota called Volsteads, highly recommend. Uh, So the Volstead Act prohibited the sale and consumption of alcohol throughout the entire country and that went into effect in 1920. Anna, however, she liked her bootleg liquor and occasionally showed up to functions visibly intoxicated like she did on May 24th, 1921. So an interesting little note that I found here uh, from the National Institutes of Health is that uh, Native Americans are five times more likely than other ethnicities to die from alcohol related causes because of the way that their bodies metabolize alcohol. So in addition to this, to her, to um, Anna being, well, like breaking the law by consuming bootleg liquor, um, there's also this other component of the, because of the way their genetics are that the, they don't process alcohol the same way and is therefore way more harmful especially if if there's uh an extended um like issue with alcoholism so i thought that was just something really fascinating that i that i didn't know because there is like a there's like a stereotype that has been perpetuated for a long time about alcoholism and native americans and there really is a, like a actual, like a metabolic kind of reason for why alcohol can be such a negative effect for Native American people. Uh, I thought that was just really fascinating. Um, so Molly had a luncheon on this date, May 24th, 1921, and Anna shocked her sister's guests by arriving drunk. Don't worry, though, she took a taxi there. She didn't drive her own car.
0: For some reason, I forget. I was, like, thinking this was older than the 1920s. And I was, when you said taxi, I was like, you mean, like, a buggy? Like a horse and <laughs> carriage? And I was like, oh, wait. Yes, they had, they had cars.
1: Yes. <laughs> and some of them had pretty lavish cars. Because some of those early ones were fancy as hell. Mm-hmm. Let's see. So she also brazenly flirted with Ernest's younger brother. So Ernest was Molly's husband. And so, and his younger brother was Brian. So after the luncheon was over, Brian drove Anna home. So needless to say, like she was quite a scandalous gal for the time and was very much free spirit. She was also, uh, she was also divorced at this time. So, and Think about like how long it really took for even just divorce to become like a uh, less taboo. I mean, even today, some people think that divorce is kind of taboo. But yeah, so she was like, "I'm gonna live my life. I'm gonna live it wild and and crazy."
0: She sounds like a fun time.
1: She sounds like she'd be really fun to party with, honestly.
0: Yeah, too I bad, mean,
1: we're a hundred years apart.
0: Yeah, like. <laughs> Anna, where, where are you at?
1: <laughs> get, get out the Ouija board. <laughs> Sadly, this would be the last time Molly would see her sister alive. Molly had already suffered the heartbreak of losing one sister, Minnie, a few years earlier to a strange wasting disease. And now her sister, Anna, had disappeared with no word left with any of her family. Anna could be impulsive. It wasn't unusual for her to go off on trips to jazz clubs that were far out of town. But after three days, Molly began to fear the worst. Her fears were further stoked by a gruesome discovery in the community. A local man, Charles Whitehorn, had disappeared on May 14th. He was found murdered. He had been shot twice right between the eyes soon after molly's fears were confirmed a boy hunting for squirrels near a creek discovered the body of anna brown she had been shot in the head can you imagine just being like i'm just squirrel hunting and instead you find a dead body like Mm -hmm. what uh what movie is that where the is it stand by me where they go where the kids go they like want to see a dead body.
0: Yeah, there's Stand by Me, and then there's also the one with Macaulay caulkin and like he's maybe it's not Macaulay caulkin but he dies from getting stung by bees. He's a little boy.
1: Oh, I know what you're talking about, and I can't think of the name of the movie. I know. Oh my it's gonna, it's gonna I'll be like in the middle of being of explaining <laughs> the conclusion. You'll be like. That's the movie.
0: Yeah, yep. Yeah. I'm gonna look it up and let everyone know at the end.
1: <laughs> I'm sure somebody is who's listening to the podcast in their car right now is being is like screaming the name of the movie at their at their speakers right now. Oh, my
0: sister <laughs> loved this movie growing up, so I know she's like Patrick. You know the name of this movie.
1: Oh, are you gonna are you gonna look it up right now?
0: Yeah. You let me know. You, you let me know going. when you. I'm gonna let everyone know at the end.
1: Okay, sounds good. Law enforcement at this time was quite a bit different than what we are used to today. A traditional police department was not yet part of the landscape, especially in rural Oklahoma, where things seem to have a bit of a Wild West vibe going on. The inquest into Anna's death was led by a justice of the peace. The Osage County Sheriff, Harve M. Frias, who already had his hands full with the Whitehorn murder, sent an untrained deputy to collect evidence from the scene of the crime. The town marshal joined the deputy and they concluded that Anna was sitting near the creek drinking moonshine when someone shot her in the head from behind. There were also two tire tracks leading from the scene, but at the time, no impressions or photographs were taken. The evidence gathering was limited by training and technology. The bullet as well was not able to be retrieved. The local doctors, the Schoen brothers, examined the wound and probed Anna's skull to retrieve the bullet. There was no exit wound, so it had to be lodged somewhere in the skull finding the the bullet would be vital to the investigation as it would help identify the murder weapon. But despite their best efforts, it was nowhere to be found. As Molly prepared for her sister's funeral, other travesties were occurring. Whenever an Osage died, the local funeral directors, casket makers, florists, basically anybody who was involved in the funeral business had special pricing for their Osage customers. No, it wasn't a discount. It was major price gouging. The average Osage funeral cost nearly $6,000 at the time. When you adjust that for inflation, that's nearly $80,000 in today's money just to bury someone. Isn't that crazy?
0: That's insane. I wonder how much... It is to bury someone in today's currency, like at the cheapest.
1: Right. I mean, I bet you it's not (laughs) $80,000. No. Uh, Local businesses that depended on patronage from the Osage took advantage of them left and right to get as much money out of them as they could. To further add insult to injury, many tribe members had no control over their own finances, because local judges could deem them mentally unfit to manage their own affairs. Those judges would then appoint someone, usually a local official, as a sort of trustee of their fortune. Many of these trustees conspired to skim off the top or inflated the bills of purchases for things like cars in order to line their own pockets. This underscored the racial divide between Native tribe members and whites. White male judges were the ones declaring Native people legally incompetent, furthering their disenfranchisement, all while awarding these juicy trustee positions to their own supporters. Being awarded such a position was akin to political favors and bribery. One woman's child even died because she was not able to access her own money to provide her child with medical care. So it's, it's absolutely sick the way that the community around the Osage were mistreating them and taking them, taking them for, they're um, taking advantage of them. And that they literally, a lot of them could not access their own money that was rightfully theirs to do things even like access medical care. And these people who are trustees, it was up to them whether or not they could, they could access their allowance, basically. It's, it's crazy. Again, when, I know we've said this before, but when we think about institutionalized racism, this is exactly how it happens with things like this.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the world is in no, no way, shape, or form perfect today, um, but I'm, I'm glad that progress has been made so that not as many of these situations are still occurring today. They are, it's not fixed, but I mean, I'm glad that humanity is treating people little bit better and better as time goes on.
1: right. There's some sort of saying that history like bows toward justice or something like that. I'm absolutely butchering this quote. I know it, but it's it's basically the the message of the quote is that as we go along, the the general timeline tends to go toward freedom and justice yeah
0: I've heard that quote before I I can't think of it verbatim right now but I know what you mean by that
1: maybe maybe at the end well I'll have to like look that up or something and or or next episode I'll be like by the way this is where that quote comes from and this is what it actually is
0: yeah sounds good
1: Anna was laid to rest in the Gray Horse Cemetery where she joined her father and her sister who preceded her in death. Her mother, Lizzie, who was already in poor health, suffered greatly having buried two of her three daughters and her health continued to deteriorate, supposedly from a similar wasting disease that took Minnie's life a few years earlier. Even though Anna was buried, the answer to who was responsible still remained unsolved. The two murders, Anna's and Whitehorn's, shared similar MOs and the likelihood that the killings were linked seemed high, but authorities didn't seem particularly motivated to solve the case. Enter Molly's husband's uncle, William Hale. Hale was a wealthy rancher, nicknamed the King of the Osage Hills. And with such a title, was very heavily involved in local affairs. He was a reserve deputy sheriff and became instrumental in nudging the investigation along. Ernest and Brian were questioned during this period of time but there is doubt cast on Brian's account of the story since he was the last one to be seen with Anna. He claimed he brought her straight home, but with what investigators had to go on, he was the closest thing to a suspect they had. Anna's ex-husband, Oda Brown, also emerged as a suspect. He was implicated by a man who was arrested for check forgery and he claimed that Oda had paid him to carry out the murder. There was not, however, any substantial evidence to back up this claim. Amidst the intrigue of the investigation, barely two months after Anna's murder, her mother Lizzie passed away, though no doctor could seem to pinpoint the exact cause of her death. If Lizzie's death was perpetrated by the same person or persons that killed Anna and Whitehorn, then the killer had to be coming from inside the community. The bodies were piling up, and the proximity and timing of all these deaths seemed very peculiar. They just all had to be related. So it's like, the killer is inside the house. Mm -hmm. It's like, somebody that they know is responsible and that I think is the scariest thing of all.
0: Yeah you it is always scary when um, you hear these stories of I mean just last week it was their own daughter that set it up but when it's something like this where it's like it's ongoing and people are getting picked off one by one everyone is sitting waiting to see who's next and everyone's looking at each other under suspicious eyes. This
1: is really, it's like a real life Agatha Christie story. Where was Hercule Poirot to uh, come investigate this? Mm -hmm. I think he would have done a great job investigating.
0: For sure. It would have, I mean, Lizzie never would have died. It would have stopped it. Right. Um, (laughs) And
1: with the local investigation stalled, whether out of prejudice or just lack of training, Molly's family turned to private investigators to pursue leads and many possibilities came up. The cab driver who had brought Anna to the luncheon before she died said that she had mentioned that she was pregnant, but she did not say anything about who the father was. A secret forbidden romance would be an excellent motive for murder. This paired well with a new theory that Mrs. Whitehorn may have committed the murders. Perhaps her husband had cheated on her with Anna and she took them both out as a result. But investigators were not able to corroborate this storyline. In the following months, two more Osage die. These two from poisoning the terrified community was beginning to put the dots together. There was a conspiracy to murder the Osage one by one in order to get their oil rights. And local authorities didn't seem to have any power to stop it from happening. A white oil man named Barney McBride was tasked with reaching out to Washington DC for federal help since the U.S. government regulates law enforcement and Indian affairs. McBride obliged, but shockingly, he didn't survive the trip. He was found brutally murdered before he could even talk to anyone about helping. It was clearer than ever that a conspiracy was afoot. It was far-reaching, and they weren't afraid to eliminate anyone who stood in their way.
0: That's like again, that's scary. Like if you're a member of this community Mm -hmm. and you're just watching your neighbors get picked off one by one, I mean, you gotta be paranoid.
1: And it's even scarier when it's like even white people who are trusted, who are willing to step in and advocate for them on their behalf, even they're not safe. And it's like, well, if, word gets out that the last guy who tried to help us ended up murdered. No one else is going to stick up for us. It's it just puts the fear into anybody who's even thinking about even helping. And that's truly devious. That's truly evil. So Molly's last remaining sister, Rita, and her husband, Bill Smith began to suspect they were being targeted next late at night they would hear noises from outside their house. In fact, their suspicions were so strong that they moved to a new house in hopes that having neighbors close by would offer them some protection. But sadly, they got no peace of mind in their new home. Neighbors' dogs began to turn up dead from poison and the late night noise continued. Someone wanted to make sure nothing would alert the Smiths in the middle of the night. They had no idea what was in store for them, but on March 10th, 1923, just before 3am, they sure found out. The house exploded with incredible force. Rita was killed instantly, as was their family servant, Nettie Brookshire, who was quite literally blown to pieces. Her remains were actually never recovered. Bill, however, suffered the most. He survived the blast, but died in the hospital several days later. He was not able to shed light on who may have been responsible for the horrible deed. Could you imagine the the suffering of not only do you know that your wife was murdered but you are probably and this is like a 1920s hospital so it's not as comfortable as they are today
0: right he was not given painkiller. well he probably was and it was probably alcohol um Either
1: that or or i don't know if i don't know when morphine became uh widely used
0: no idea maybe,
1: i don't know i i i feel like yeah maybe they had a basic form of painkiller but here you were laying in bed suffering also knowing that your spouse was was dead so like even if you do make it out of this like you're you're traumatized forever
0: yeah and if Um, you're in an explosion like you're definitely gonna have some physical uh Uh, ailments following like your body's not going to be the same again um so you're you're mentally emotionally and physically just suffering
1: Mm -hmm. like this is is really one of the cruelest ways to die with slowly and with the emotional trauma and and knowing that like somebody wanted you dead and they blew your house up to make sure of it yeah, it's ugh, it's just horrifying to think about mm-hmm. and that whoever it is and they also didn't care about collateral damage cuz obviously there's like their servant who was just and also another white victim so like they, they are indiscriminately killing anybody
0: anyone who's in their in their way of yeah what anybody they who's wants.
1: even in their their vicinity and they don't care and obviously they think that they're going to get away with this which is really really devious Mm -hmm. it's incredibly awful as the crimes grew more horrific oklahoma governor jack c walton sent his top state investigator herman fox davis to try and find the cause of the deaths But shocker, I know this guy was corrupt AF. So he was basically like taking bribes from people to just like-
0: To not do his job.
1: To not do his job, exactly. Uh, And even the governor himself was impeached for abuse of power. So it's like here, you've got these top officials who are wheeling and dealing and are corrupt and it's like who like who can you trust like is there anybody in the state government that isn't corrupt like how like how can this be it's it's bizarre it seemed like everybody was on the take at some like at every level of government so meanwhile molly is an absolute wreck her husband ernest and his uncle william hale Uh, did their best to comfort her with hale promising to avenge her family's blood
0: does she have any family left at this point
1: so um well she she has her kids but as far like yeah at this point all of her sisters are dead and her parents are also dead did she have
0: a brother named brian
1: Nope, that is Ernest's brother's brother. Oh, okay. So her that's her brother-in-law. Okay. Fearing that she may be the next victim, Molly stopped leaving the house. And while she recoiled into her home, her health also suffered. Her diabetes grew worse, but it was strange how her medicine didn't seem to be making her any better. Molly was being poisoned. Enter Tom White, a special agent with the federal government's Bureau of Investigation. So this is like the FBI before it became the FBI. Sure. The new head honcho at the Bureau was none other than J. Edgar Hoover. And he wanted a feather in his cap for solving this mystery white was directed to take command of the field office in oklahoma city and put an end to the killings once and for all failure was not an option white full of a sense of duty took on the case in spite of knowing that many who had tried to solve it had met untimely ends he would have to work carefully and quickly to avoid the target on his own back White took charge of the Oklahoma City field office in July of 1925. He quickly surmised that a network of killers were working together to commit the murders. He also saw that the previous investigation attempts had been tainted with corruption and shoddy workmanship. Many leads had not been properly followed up on, and now White and his agents had to assemble the full picture from a scattered series of clues. White had an uphill battle though. Crime scene information was not at hand. In fact, the file on Anna Brown's killing had been stolen from the office of justice.
0: Pretty how do you Yeah, and how does the, like a common citizen just walk into the office of justice, know where the file is and just whoop walk on out?
1: Right? Unless it's somebody who is an official
0: and is involved Mm
1: -hmm. intimately somehow would know exactly where that file is that's my theory
0: suspicious Mm -hmm.
1: so the undertaker in uh, anna brown's case though he had secretly preserved anna's skull and after a thorough investigation of the skull uh, white determined that someone would have had to have stolen the bullet during the initial examination. So he goes back to the Schoen brothers uh, and questions them, uh, but they claimed that it had never been found. It's pretty shady, but White continued to follow up on other leads. So these doctors, these brothers, are starting to look very, very suspicious. Accusations were thrown around the community and White and his team worked to follow up on every lead. One by one, suspects were ruled out until they finally spoke to Brian Burkhart, Molly's brother-in-law, who you'll recall was one of the last people to have seen Anna alive. Initially, his alibi seemed airtight. He, um, so he claimed that he brought her straight home and then he, he went to see some show in one of the neighboring towns. So that was his alibi. Uh, and he had, uh, he had William Hale, his brother Ernest and a visiting aunt and uncle as uh, corroborators to his story. That was part of his alibi that he said that he went to see that show with all of them, uh, but then Other witnesses came forward that contradicted Brian's version of events. And then suddenly the lies that his family had been telling began to become apparent. Then there was an interesting break in the case. A private investigator who had been hired by Hale in 1921 named Pike he used a go-between uh, to reveal that he had vital information in the case. He said that there had been another man spotted with Anna and Brian the evening that she disappeared, and he knew who it was. But Pike would only reveal this information if he was paid handsomely for it. What a jerk, right?
0: Mm-hmm, but this... I- this story is just full of a bunch of little greedy sleazy people
1: exactly like and it's all people who feel that they could take advantage of the osage people because they see them as less deserving of it it's it's sort of like oh well if i can trick them out of this money then i deserve it more than they do Mm -hmm. and it's this weird it's very much rooted in white supremacy
0: very much so
1: that they could not it seemed like the white community generally didn't like seeing these native american people doing better than them which is just so crazy it's like really you can't stand to see anybody else just thriving other than if just because they look different than you
0: right And, you know, this is in the 1920s, there was still, like, this theory of, like, even though the white people came here and stole this land, they're like, this is our land. It's not the natives who have lived here for centuries. It's ours now.
1: Right. And, boy, we could go down a whole rabbit hole of all of the other crazy race related things that are happening especially in the 1920s I mean this is prime like peak of the Ku Klux Klan Uh, there is so much race related stuff happening in this time period and this and when you think about it like we are not that far separated from this time period like I'm thinking of like my grandmother was born in the was born in the 1920s right and so I'm really kind of only one generation away from this time period. And I mean, granted we've made a lot of, like we were talking about earlier, we've made a lot of progress, but it takes a lot of time and effort to rid ourselves of the prejudices that were ingrained from the generations that came before us.
0: Mm-hmm. It takes a lot a lot of uh, self-awareness a lot Very of work. true.
1: Mm-hmm. So the the Bureau was not about to pay Pike for this information. They they weren't having it. Um, but funny enough, Pike was later arrested for highway robbery. So it's like here's this guy who's a private investigator, and then he goes out and commits a crime. Like <laughs> That's it, that's exactly the kind of person you want working for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's picked up for highway robbery. He's kind of at a disadvantage where it's like, okay, we've got you for this for robbery. We can put you away for that. You better give us the goods. So he spills the beans. But uh, his initial information about like who he said the the other man was was bogus like they followed up on it couldn't corroborate that story Uh, but something more vital did come out from this interaction with Pike he had actually never really been hired to solve the murder of Anna Brown he'd actually been asked to conceal Brian's whereabouts on the night of the crime He was asked to manufacture evidence, cast doubts, and shape an alibi. And his orders came from William Hale.
0: No way.
1: Plot twist.
0: Uh Uh-huh.
1: The guy who said that he was going to help avenge her family's blood may have been the one orchestrating some of this shady business.
0: The plot thickens.
1: Yes. White turned his investigation toward Hale and his nephews as he tried to untangle the web of lies. He believed Rita's husband, Bill Smith, was on to the conspiracy before his death, but found it suspicious that he had made one of the Schoen brothers administrator of his wife's estate before he died. As White began to pull back the curtain on Hale, he found that there had been quite a bit of insurance fraud in his past. He had instructed his employees to torch his own ranch to the tune of $30,000 in insurance money, which again, like that's a ton of money.
0: Mm -hmm. Especially in the 1920s.
1: Yeah. Uh, And even more suspicious, he had an insurance policy on one of the people who ended up dead that paid out $25,000. So this is another Osage member of the community. It was a really weird scheme. Like, it's like he convinced him to take out this insurance policy. And then when he ended up dead, he was like, by the way, I have this It seemed to make sense that Hale could have been orchestrating the murders of Molly's family so that eventually, Ernest, Hale's loyal nephew, would inherit the whole fortune. But taking on Hale, who was a pillar of the community and extremely influential in local politics, would be a tough target to take on. If White was going to have going to put Hale away, he was going to have to do it by the book and tie up every loose end without significant outside help. So there it's already decided that he's probably not going to get any extra outside help. He's going to have to go it alone. So White hears from a member of the Al Spencer gang that the offer to murder Bill and Rita Smith had, a- had been expanded extended to them, but the gang declined because it wasn't their style. From there, a trail of potential witnesses runs cold as each implicated person turns out to already be deceased, but an unexpected tip from a prisoner named Bert Lawson implicated both Hale and Ernest. He claimed that the pair had paid him $5,000 to blow up the Smith's house. As he works to corroborate Lawson's story, White finally gets a warrant to arrest Ernest and Hale. While in jail, Ernest cracks and implicates his uncle in several of the murders and the pieces start to fall into place. While all this is happening, Molly is in terrible shape and her condition is so bad that she is taken to a hospital. So this is like hospital in another town.
0: Mm-hmm, Cause she was being poisoned.
1: Exactly. So suspiciously there, uh, there's definitely a correlation when, as, as soon as she spends time in this hospital away from home, her condition improves immensely. So finally, someone put two and two together and suggested that Molly had been, was being slowly poisoned and the suspicion was falling on the Schoen brothers who vehemently denied the accusation. After Molly's recovery, she returned determined that her, uh, that those responsible for the deaths of her family members faced justice. Though she couldn't seem to believe her husband could be tied up in the whole sordid affair. Which is so heartbreaking because it's pretty clear that Molly loves her husband and she thinks that there's no way that he would be responsible for something like this. Despite that the evidence keeps suggesting that he was at least in on it in some way. It's it's really heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, and like I think, I think any person in love would just keep denying that as long as they possibly could.
1: Right. And really up to this point, I, she probably believed that her husband had taken pretty decent care of her. Uh,
0: Yeah. I mean, he was helping every time a family member died, he was there. Yeah. That's what it
1: kind of seemed like, Uh, but that may not, that all may have been a front. Mm -hmm. The case of the Osage murders became a national sensation and was reported on across the country. Ernest out of fear for his life was taken out of state by bureau agents to keep him away from the long arm of Hale's influence. But when he came back for the trial and after a conversation with Hale's lawyers Ernest recanted his incriminating statements toward his uncle. So it's just like, they almost have him. And then one conversation with Hale's lawyers and he flips his mm. whole
0: script. I wonder what kind of deal they were going to make him.
1: I, ex- I want, I would want to know that too. To further salt the wound to the prosecution's case, he even claimed that the federal investigators had tortured him with electrocution to get the answers that they desired. And that and, and this salacious lie ran in headlines across the nation and infuriated the Bureau chief J. Edgar Hoover. So Hoover, who's like a super buy the book kind of guy, like he would he would actually like fire agents for not filing paperwork properly. Like it's he was. Very much like you have to do things my way, or the or it's the highway.
0: So he's very type A.
1: Very much,
0: very. He's like A plus.
1: Yeah, an absolute control freak. (laughs) Uh, and and he was he was so upset to see this headline because this is not how you run an investigation. But of course, it was a lie. Like, I really hope that White was able to explain, explain, be like, this is all bullshit. But then, Ernest had a change of heart. So it's he keeps going back and forth. This is just wild. So Ernest and Molly's youngest daughter passed away from an illness. And when he went to retell his story on the, on the stand, he implicated Hale. So perhaps the death of his daughter made him want to clear his guilty conscience, or perhaps he suspected that his child had become yet another victim of the reign of terror. Whatever the reason was, Ernest was going to pay for his involvement and he was sentenced to life in prison with hard labor. Next, it was Hale's turn to be prosecuted. There was much to do about witness tampering and bribing jurors, let alone the uncertainty that a white man would be put away for murdering a Native American. they actually tried to do this, this trial four times because they kept on being like a, a juror was bribed or um, a witness was tampered with or something like that. So it took multiple tries to get this to finally reach its full conclusion.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure, like, they had issues finding jury members as well. Because, I mean, I'm sure there are people on both sides of the fence that had very strong opinions. And your, yep. your juries are supposed to be blind. Impartial.
1: Yeah, they're supposed to be very impartial. And especially in a local case involving somebody who pretty much everybody knows this guy. it's It must have been really difficult to to find um impartial jurors, and it was probably a very imperfect uh, uh, process. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But despite all of, of Hale's dirty tricks, he was still found guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. It should be noted though, that murder in the first degree could result in the death penalty. And if the roles had been reversed, the death penalty surely would have been invoked. But once again, the justice system scales tipped in the favor of the powerful and well-connected. Although it is still a huge victory that he was convicted at all. So it's it was very shocking, especially to Hale, that he was actually found guilty.
0: Yeah, I can imagine it was because, I mean as you mentioned like he was a well known well respected um got that money mm mhm yeah has connections
1: right and it's uh it's very shocking i mean even just the whole premise that here is a white person who will go to jail because he took the life of a native american mm-hmm. and even that alone is a huge milestone
0: right i mean kudos to that that judge and jury because those were some good people that recognize that just because we're we look different doesn't mean that we are any less or more valuable
1: Right. That, at that time, it probably took a lot of courage because they were, they could have, you know how they were tampering with the jury and like offering to bribe people on other attempts. They probably could have also just as easily threatened to be like, we'll kill you if yeah. you don't. It's like, you saw what happened to all these other people. What makes you think that you're special that you won't also end up dead?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I'm sure. I'm sure there were threats made.
1: Yeah. So it takes courage to be on a jury sometimes. Mm hmm. After the sensational case came to a close, White chose to leave the Bureau and become the warden of Leavenworth Prison, where he did his best to make reforms. So kudos to you, White. Yeah. Hale and one of his accomplices were later sent to that prison and the old advers- adversaries were reu- reunited once more. But White's days of excitement weren't over. He oversaw the hanging of legendary serial killer, Carl Pansram and was also wounded in a hostage crisis during an attempted breakout by two inmates. White's cool head managed to save himself and the hostages, but he was significantly injured in that uh, hostage-taking situation. Uh, so, because he was uh, injured, and uh, that his injury left him um, with some long-standing
0: side effects.
1: Yeah, side yeah, long-standing side effects. Um, he took a, a little bit lesser, um, less stressful position at Latuna Prison in El Paso, Texas. So he, that's, he transferred there.
0: Okay, I feel like he deserves you know, a, a less pressured position given yeah. everything that he did and went through.
1: Right, uh, so he lived out the rest of his days there until he passed away in 1971. So it sounds like he had a, a pretty exciting life.
0: I'd say so. Well, good on him. I'm glad okay. he was there to make sure justice was served.
1: Right. And it's amazing that um, that he, like the whole little side story of when he was taken hostage, That so like these prisoners they break out they take him as hostage and then they go to like a nearby farm or something and they take like these two other kids hostage like these two teenagers hostage and thanks to his like cool head and like his ability to like talk things out um he manages to save everybody in that
0: wow. situation
1: um, I think the the prisoners though, I think, did die in a shootout with authorities, but all of the hostages were safe because of him. Mm-hmm. Just think like it's kind of like one of those things where like if you can, if you can save one person's life, or if some small thing that you do um, makes someone's life better or some, or you save some person, it was all worth it
0: like yeah for sure
1: it's just like a ripple effect of like all these other things that you all this other difference that you made in the world because Mm -hmm. that person was able to live their
0: life right and you know he saved more than just those hostages because you know the osage people were being picked off one by one i mean i'm sure he he uh stopped that process that was taking place in that community
1: and there was all and what, what what also helped too is that there was legislation passed after this whole investigation that um that oil head rights could uh like they couldn't just be inherited by anyone like it had like it restricted it so basically whoever had this whoever was putting forth this plan or if anybody else tried to do the same scheme they'd be out of luck because nobody else could inherit those oil rights so it had to be somebody who was like full-blooded
0: great so, or if or if not full-blooded like written out in the last will and testament maybe I
1: actually I think the legislation would not allow people to leave their oil rights to anybody else. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I think that because then, because then there could, it could get all shady and, and people could coerce people to sign a last will and testament. That's
0: and then true. Nobody.
1: So I think that put the kibosh on that.
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: so, not surprisingly, after the trial, Molly divorced Ernest.
0: I wonder why.
1: Yeah I can't imagine. Uh, It might have been because that he revealed that he knew about the murders of her family. I'm pretty sure that would be a major uh, source cited on that divorce proceeding.
0: Maybe. Uh,
1: Now that she was in far better health she returned to active public life and even fell in love again. She married a man named Jacob Cobb in 1928. And in 1931, she gained her financial freedom and was once again able to control her own finances without the need of a guardian. So she had been one of those people who had been declared incompetent and, um, and she basically fought that claim and she won. It's like, yes, yes, queen, yes. <laughs> uh, she later passed away on June 16th, 1937 at the age of 50. Still kind of young, but yeah. at least she died like, up, like free to, to control her own finances, w- married to a man who seemed to actually appreciate her.
0: Yeah, and she gained like, you know, an extra 20 some years that she might have lost if, you know, her first earnest would have, you know, completed his goal.
1: Yeah, her her life would have been dramatically shorter if her husband had allowed or her husband's plot had been carried out. So Hale. He stayed in prison until he was paroled in 1947. Still kind of annoying that he ever got paroled in the first place, but you know, that's the way it works. The King of the Osage Hills wasn't exactly welcome back in his old territory. He spent much of his time on a ranch in Montana. He later died in Arizona in 1962 and was buried in Wichita, Kansas. Ernest was sent to the Oklahoma State Penitentiary in McAllister, Oklahoma, and served his time there until he was paroled in 1937. So it doesn't seem like a lot, like for a life sentence, that doesn't seem like very long.
0: Yeah, it really, it really bothers me when I hear that people are in prison for, for life and then they get out in like 10 years.
1: Yeah. Uh, And also, shockingly, in 1965, Ernest received a full pardon from the governor of Oklahoma, Henry Bellman.
0: That's ridiculous.
1: And it's crazy because he was already out of prison. Like, why would he need a full pardon? It just, it seems like you only did that just to piss off the Osage people. And they were rightfully irritated. Uh, and surprisingly, he found himself in trouble with the law again in 1966 for robbery. So it's like, wow, you pardoned him in 1965, and the next year he goes out and commits another <laughs> crime.
0: He did not take advantage of that situation.
1: I know, it's ridiculous. Um, but he did end up living a surprisingly long life. Uh, he was 94 years old when he passed away in 1986. That's... I hate that. Where it's like, wow, you got to live the longest life out of anybody that you knew probably. And you. You,
0: you cut so many of... other people's lives short. Yeah, yeah. And yet you get to live to 96 years old.
1: or 94
0: oh yes but he died in 86 so yeah Yeah, that's that's not fair
1: but i can only hope that he was haunted every single day of his life by what he was responsible for i can only hope enjoyed during their personal oil boom the effects of this violent time can still be seen today in the missing links and dead ends in the family trees of those that still live in the area Each life lost is a pain, an irreversible scar on the community. Greed and racism reared its ugly head in this most profoundly evil way. And the story must never be forgotten so that we may not repeat it ever again. And that is the story of the reign of terror in Osage country.
0: Wow. Um, it, It stuck out to me when... You mentioned that there were mysterious deaths all throughout the teens and twenties, and it just really makes you wonder how many how many of those people were also victims. Obviously, not all of uh, Ernest and Hale, but other uh, like-minded folks. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, you know, this was a very abridged version of the whole book. Um, I, I chose to focus on this one family because that was the main storyline of the book, but there are, the book goes way deep into, um, a, a lot of these other people on the periphery of this family that also met early deaths and it, under very suspicious circumstances, um, Uh, David Gran also goes into the um, he investigates some of the other deaths like the um, some of the oil men who tried to actually help and ended up being murdered themselves. Um, There were just so many who were killed uh, just for being a part of the tribe or just for trying to help or even like just existing nearby. I mean, you think about um, the, uh, the servant girl who worked for Rita and Bill, like she was just doing her life, like doing her job. And she was senselessly murdered because she was in the wrong place at the wrong time.
0: Right. And I'm sure there might've been, you know, people that that saw something they shouldn't have seen or they heard something they shouldn't have heard. Mm-hmm. And so they got taken out as well, even though they were just innocent bystanders.
1: Yeah, or people who were set up. You know, there was that string of the um, the suspects or like the people that they wanted to question. But every time they they got a new name and they were like, okay, let's go find this person, they were already dead. Mm-hmm. It just seems like one of those it it is very much like a conspiracy movie where it's just like everyone who's involved with the crime is picked off one by one too. So it's like, it's like this double crime of like, even the perpetrators are being picked off. So it's like, there's this undercurrent of evil that's taking everyone out.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: It's, I think that's uh makes this a very, very, intriguing case. Uh, It's got a lot of that conspiracy element to it that I think those who are detective-minded really find interesting. But another, this is another one of those uh, books that I can't say enough good things about, Killers of the Flower Moon by David Graham. It was an excellent read and there is a whole lot more information in there that uh, I didn't even touch on in this podcast because we could go on for another two hours probably talking about that if we went into every little detail. So those of you interested in learning more, please pick up the book.
0: Well, great job uh, summarizing the story. Um, Thank you. I I enjoyed discussing it with you a lot. Like I said, I I knew like the the general story that the Osage people did own all this oil and they're being murdered uh, for their wealth. But I didn't, I didn't know this, this personal story of Molly and her family. So right. um, yeah, great job. I enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Well, um, it is the end of the episode, everyone. Uh, we would just like to remind you to like rate and review us wherever you're listening, check out our social media accounts and let us know if you want to be our little deviants.
1: Yes. Or if you have some other cute nickname in mind. We yes. are more than willing to listen.
0: And the movie that uh we were confused about earlier um it was Macaulay caulkin who was killed by bees. Oh the, okay yeah and the movie is my girl
1: oh of course mm-hmm. yes
0: yes Yep. So now, uh, all you youngins that didn't grow up on 80s nostalgia, go check that out. <laughs> That'll keep you busy until next time.
1: All right. Well, until next time.
0: Bye. Bye. Bye.